This morning we're going to consider God's providential care of baby Moses. God's providential care of baby Moses. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. About 1500 BC, Israel was in slavery in Egypt, a country that was once a shelter for the Israelites, but it had now become a place of torment. As well as enduring hard labour and brutal affliction at the hands of their taskmasters, the Israelites, they suffered anguish and the misery of seeing their newborn baby boys being put to death in the river on the orders of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Today we shall consider God's providential care of a little Hebrew baby boy named Moses, a child who would grow up to be a prophet of God, a mediator between God and the Israelites, and who at 80 years of age would lead the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. And certain estimates would put the number at about 2 million people. It's not that important, is it? And we're not told, but uh, it would seem to be maybe 2 million people that at 80 years of age, Moses would eventually lead out of slavery and affliction in Egypt. First of all, what do we mean by the providence of God? Providence comes from the Latin word providere, and the word is used in Acts chapter 24 verse 2. I'm going to keep my finger in Exodus chapter 2 and turn to Acts. I think this is the only time I'll probably ask you to turn anywhere in your Bible this morning. Acts chapter 22. Sorry, Acts chapter 24. For a bit of context, we can read verses 1 and 2. And see if we can make sense of that word providence that comes right at the end of verse 2. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. Okay, we didn't really go any further than that. Just those first couple of verses there. In many Bible versions, we've got foresight written instead of providence. But looking at um, those verses there, Acts chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. We get an idea of the meaning of providence or foresight, don't we? In verse 2, the Jewish high priest was flattering the Roman governor Felix by giving him the credit for good things that had happened. The Roman governor's directing of events was seen to be providential. It was his foresight uh, that because of his foresight that the the Jews enjoyed some measure of peace and prosperity under the Roman occupation. 
But above all else, God directs events in accordance with his eternal decrees and his good pleasure, despite all the schemes of wicked men to frustrate his plans. As it is written in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Only the most stubborn and ardent atheist will fail to see the providence of God in the life of Moses. What we consider now is that Moses was protected by the providence or the foresight of God. What we have in Exodus chapter 2 verses 1 to 2 to 10 as an example of divine providence. Let's go through these verses again quickly. Verse 2. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. In that verse we are told that baby Moses was a goodly child. Goodly meaning pleasant or agreeable or even beautiful. In the New Testament in Acts chapter 7 and verse 20, Stephen described baby Moses as exceeding fair. And in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23, baby Moses is described as a proper child meaning fair or beautiful. Do we get the picture here? Moses was a beautiful child. I would suspect that most mothers would say that their their newborn baby is beautiful, even if that baby looks more like a, a stewed apricot than anything else. However, in verse 2, none other than God in his word, is telling us that baby Moses was beautiful. Let's have a look at verse 3. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. Here we see Three months old Moses' mother placing him in a waterproofed ark in the most unlikely of places. The reeds of the river where countless other Hebrew baby boys were thrown to their death on the orders of Pharaoh. And in that river of death, the mother of Moses chose to hide her precious little baby who was exceedingly beautiful. I ask you, was there ever any chance of the ark sinking or capsizing? What do you think? Not a chance. Not with God directing events. Let's have a look at verse 4. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. Providentially, Moses' big sister Miriam kept watch over him. She kept an eye on him from a distance. Verses 5 and 6. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid 
to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Who should happen to come along to the river for a wash? None other than a princess of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter. The daughter of the most brutal and murderous man, Pharaoh. Yet for all that she had compassion on Moses, even though she could see that he was a Hebrew boy. Perhaps she saw that he'd been circumcised, I don't know. I wonder if the princess's heart melted when she beheld his beauty. Because let's remember, he really was a beautiful baby. And she looked down upon that beautiful baby and had compassion on him. Verses 7 through to 9. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and see to thee, sorry, shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. Pharaoh's daughter accepted the offer of Moses' big sister to go and get a Hebrew nurse to look after him. Who did Miriam come back with? None other than Moses' mum. And what's more, Pharaoh's daughter paid her to look after her own son. So one might say that she received child benefit from the princess of Egypt. To look after her child. Let's look at verse 10. And the child grew. And she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said. Because I drew him out of the water. When Moses. Who should have been put to death at birth. Had grown. He became the adopted son. Of Pharaoh's daughter. And according to Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, he became learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. In other words, Moses received the very best education that was available in Egypt. Just consider for a moment how ironic it is that the Egyptian establishment that had become so hostile and so opposed to the Hebrews, the Israelites, cared for, educated and prepared Moses for the great work of what? Of leading the Israelites out of captivity of Egypt. I've got a hymn that I want to read to you that really captures all of this. Who will take little baby? I, said the water deep. Baby will float in his cradle boat. And I shall rock him to sleep. Who will hide little baby? We, said the rushes tall. Safely will hide the baby inside that nobody sees him at all. Who will watch o'er the baby? Miriam whispers I. I'm sure to hear if the baby dear 
gives even a tiny, soft cry. Who will guard, little baby, out on the water's blue? Silently sleep, baby, safely sleep, for God will take care of you. We see that in those ten verses there. God taking care of Moses. Let's consider divine providence in our lives. As a Christian, it often thrills my heart and it comforts me to know that God, who according to the very first verses of the Bible, created the heavens and the earth, the creator God, that he, that same God, the only true God, is at work providentially in my life. I find that amazing. I'll say that again. The creator of all things, working providentially in my life. Consider your own lives and how things have unfolded over the years and can you see the hand of God at work in your life? Because I can. My life has neither been exceptionally exciting or exceptionally boring. Just one of the, just a certain things have happened in my life and when I we're to look forward we're to look forward to uh, and keep on pressing forward if we're Christians. But I do suggest you look back if only to see the hand of God at work in your life. I can go back to even before I became a Christian. Let's not forget, I became a Christian quite late in life. I can remember the day when I was a store detective, spending my days walking around shops looking for thieves. And I followed someone who I suspected of being a thief out of a bookshop that I was looking after. And I followed him around town and I followed him into a public library. I wasn't sure if he was stealing or not. And whilst I I was in there, I picked up a leaflet. It was advertising college courses. The next thing I knew, I was enrolled on a college course for university. A year later I went on to university, three years later I graduated as a maths graduate, a year after that I graduated as a teacher of mathematics. I went to Hebron School in India, I met my wife in India, sorry I'm forgetting something really big here, towards the end of my time at university I became a Christian and ever since that day I wanted to proclaim the gospel. And so when I qualified as a teacher, I thought, let's go and be a missionary in India. And that's where I met my wife. We came back to England. We've got two beautiful daughters. So many things happened in my life. Certain years later, I I got the call to become the pastor of this church. This is me who was walking around as a, 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 a store detective not so many years earlier having no thought for God whatsoever. Pastor of this church, and in more recent times, human rights activism, standing with others, proclaiming the right of children to be born and not killed in their mother's wombs, proclaiming a message of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every step of the way I see the hand of God And even before I became a Christian, God was at work, guiding me, 
for when he would eventually call me by his grace and save me by his grace through faith in Jesus. Oh yeah, I can see the hand of God at work in my life. Can you? However, I have a word of caution. According to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, in which it is written, and we, ha- and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Working for good can be and often is very painful. Dear Christian, all things working together for good in your life can include sickness, bitter disappointments, broken relationships in this world, pain and sorrow. Working for good. God working for good in your life. I suppose it's a bit like a mum who lays out all the ingredients to bake of cake, the raw eggs, the flour, the butter, the milk, the chocolate. Then along comes one of the kids or the husband and steals a taste of each of the ingredients. Some taste yum, especially the chocolate, and some taste yuck. But when all the ingredients are put together and the cake is made, the end result is Delicious, especially when my wife is making the cake. Likewise, in the providence of God, all things, both pleasant and unpleasant, both yum and yuck, work together for good for those whom he has chosen in eternity and called in due time to be saved from their sins and to be conformed to the image of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses natural processes to fulfill his purposes. All the things I said to you about God's hand in my life, natural processes, me walking in a library, nothing spectacular about that. Going to college, university, millions of others have done the same thing. No big deal. That's probably why so much of God's providential interventions in people's lives are conveniently written off as being nothing more than coincidence or good luck. The nice things can be written off as good luck and the bad things that happen as bad luck. Maybe you as a Christian, you've been trying to tell people about God working in your life and they're giving you that blank expression And if they don't say it, they're thinking it, well, coincidence, luck, bad luck, whatever. And you know that it's the hand of God guiding you. Finally, is there someone here who does not accept that God providentially works out his purposes through natural processes in the world generally and in the life's of individuals. It's a big title, isn't it? Let me just say that again. Finally, is there someone here who does not accept that God providentially works out his purposes through natural processes in the world, generally, and in the lives of individuals? I'll assume that you all believe in God. Every one of you. 
After all, the Bible says that only the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. One good reason why atheists are fools, and that means sinfully foolish, I mean, we can all be foolish at times. It's not difficult for me to be a fool. But the, when the Bible talks about people being fools, it's sinfully foolish. And one good reason why atheists are fools is because since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead. It can all be seen, everything about God. His power can be seen in what he has created. So those people are without excuse. Those foolish people are without excuse. All you need to do is look at the sunset or the sea or the hills or the vast array of animals with their different shapes, colours and sizes from the tiny ant to the huge elephant. Or just look at one another. As David the psalmist said, For you formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. And elsewhere in the Psalms, David said, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and those that dwell therein. David definitely was not an atheist. David definitely was not a fool. Even though in your heart of hearts you're not a fool because you know that God is, do you nevertheless insist that God is distant and that he does not intervene in the affairs of this world and that he does not intervene in your life? God has made everything and then he's just gone on his merry way, leaving us to get on with it. Is that what you really think? Is there someone in here who uses science and nothing else to explain the different seasons or the changing weather, even though the Bible tells us that God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and that he sends rain on the just and on the unjust? Is there someone in here who, having considered our passage in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, would still fail to see the hand of God in the affairs of baby Moses? Do you really put his survival and his prosperity down to chance and good luck? What about your own life, I ask you again? Is there nothing that has ever happened in your life? that you have not attributed to the hand of God? Nothing at all? Last of all, and I will be turning to another reference now, but you don't have to keep your finger in Exodus. Turn to Acts chapter 2. You see the providence of God in these verses in Acts chapter 2. Verse 22 to 24. <coughs> This is on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preaching to the multitude. And this is what he said, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. An example there of the providence of God. God had his hand in everything that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus coming down into this world of sin. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, we're told in the Bible. The treatment that he received at the hands of wicked men who beat him, buffeted him, scourged him so that he had deep channels in his back filled with blood. Those men who crowned him with thorns, who pierced his hands and his feet, who threw a spear in his side, lifted him up to die upon that cross. We're told in the Old Testament that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Lord have laid upon him the iniquity of us all, that is God's people. And we're told in these verses that I've just read to you here in Acts chapter 2, that he was delivered, Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God knew about it, it didn't take God by surprise. Jesus had already said, I lay down my life for my sheep. When Jesus was heralded by John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That is a reference to Jesus being the sacrificial Lamb of God who had come into the world. God had ordained these things to happen. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. No surprises with God at all. No knee-jerk reactions from God. God ordained that this would happen, that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be nailed to a cross and lay down his life, bearing in his own body the sins of all who believe in him. Do you think that that's just how it was? Maybe you say it didn't happen. Then you really are a fool. There's no reason whatsoever to reject the evidence, in the, the weight of evidence in the Bible. And that just will not do. It is unacceptable to say that it did not happen. What you have to figure out is whether it was just the way the cookie crumbled or whether God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, that includes the people in here now, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. May each one of you be people who are not fools. You believe that God is, 
and that you uh, you believe in you can see the providence of God in your own life you've got you are you yourself are a living witness of the providence of God you're not so dull so stupid that you cannot see the providence of God in your life and last of all that you see that providence of God the hand of God in laying in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified at Calvary's cross where the Lord himself laid upon Jesus the iniquity of all who believe in him is that you? something for you to, to sort out may each one of us be people who are not fools but we belong to Jesus and, he, and know him as the lover of our souls Amen.